What's up, everyone, and welcome to my personal podcast. And this is the inaugural episode. And I thought, why don't we just start off with a bang with one of the most accomplished coaches of all time in European history, Coach Ettore Messina. I'm very proud to be able to call him my friend and mentor. And we had a long but very nice and very informative conversation about his coaching path, about the lessons he learned from it, the communication that he uses in his staff and the expectations he has from them. And much, much more. It was a mammoth-length conversation, so don't rush through it. You don't have to listen to all at once. Take your time. Get your pen and paper out and take some notes and just enjoy. Afterwards, if you have time, please subscribe to this podcast, whether it's on a YouTube channel or on this platform that you're listening to on this audio version. Also, you can rate this episode. Just basically just go to town on my podcast, whether it's rating, subscribing, whatever you want to do. It was not my best performance per se, on this podcast so please excuse me but i uh, i'm always i tend to be more self-critical than others would be with me so take your time please enjoy and uh yeah here we go we're rolling right now coach thanks for being on my first podcast and inaugural episode with my man Enter great great honor great honor you're a friend you're a great coach i'm very very happy to join you today hopefully you- somebody besides my mom my wife and your parents will listen to us. <laughs> well, I hope so. You know, in college, I studied communication. And the first thing I learned in in a, in a speech class was that it's very important to have an attention getter, a good attention getter. And I have no doubt that this is it. So I I, I think there will be hopefully, more people listening. Hopefully. So um, on a serious note, though, I appreciate your trust in me. Uh, I, I'm a rookie with this and it's not I don't take it for granted. So thanks for taking the chance on that. Um, before we dive, before we dive into it, uh, you know the, the year 2020 was a very special year for every every one of us, and um, I would like to just have a short uh, recap of what it meant to you, what perspective it provided apart from basketball in terms of life. Um, one positive and one negative immediately jumped to my mind. The positive one was that uh, we were. Uh, because we were declared a red zone, uh, all Italy, Milano, uh, all the region of Lombardia, that, as you know, was hit extremely hard in the first wave of the virus. Uh, that gave me, my wife, my son, and my daughter the opportunity to live together for a couple of months. And, uh, you know, just uh, together, what I mean together, you well know, because uh, it's been like this for a lot of people. Um, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, you know, share the same space, meals, uh, conversations, uh, watch a movie together, uh, play uh, a table game like Monopoly, or do um, homework, uh, um, fitness, you know, just to stay in shape uh, together. Uh, it's, been, it's been an amazing time. It's been an amazing time. And this is on the positive one. The other one I will never forget uh, the uh, the horns of the ambulances uh, rushing to the hosp- to the clinic, the hospitals. We live uh, close to one of the biggest hospitals in Milano, and it's been uh, really, really hard to witness that. And and uh, the other thing, the lines of people uh, seeking for meals in these uh, you know organization charities places where they were feeding. A lot of people that have lost jobs, that have lost uh, the opportunity to uh, just eat, just 
have a proper meal. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard for a lot of people. Uh, hopefully, it will come out soon. But still, um, I think that the sense of togetherness and uh, the, the being available to help people, unfortunately, is not been enough. Uh, we had the first. Uh, we had the first uh, uh, weeks where the sense of uh, let's do it together, let's overcome this together. Uh, this is a war. We got to stick together. Was a very strong feel, and then immediately after those first weeks, uh, um, you know, too many selfish behaviors, too many uh, people who forgot the that we were in emergency, and we need to be extremely disciplined. Um, so positive and negative things that unfortunately, unfortunately, are the mirror of the who we are. As people, uh, who is the how is the human being? Nothing new, unfortunately. But our, everybody was hoping probably that the emergency was going to uh, pull the best out of us, and that that happened for a little while, and then uh, we became again individuals, and that's not for people like you and I who've been living all life trying to put people together in order to become teams. Uh, I don't think we've done an enough good job in becoming teams. That that's just my feel. Well, that that little part of of hope still remains because for a little bit we could keep it together and get it together. So it remains it remains up. I remain optimistic because it gave us a sense of reflection. And when you when you go through these ups and downs, you can still you're still able to show some gratitude for the situation you're in. I at least am able to because I was reflecting a lot, and I think that this time gave all of us a time of reflection. And I think those people that reverted back to who they were, I think at some point they will catch up to 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 the right behavior. So I, I remain optimistic because for a short period, if, at least you can do it. And that means that yeah. in, in the long term, you should be able to revert to that as well. Well, the good thing is that those who are young as you are, remain optimistic. And that gives us, I think, the strength to go forward. Uh, I think the, the, young, the young generations have been showing uh, on one side, a little bit too much of undiscipline uh, with their desire of stay together, of, uh, you know, keep going out, keep uh, entertaining relationship. But on the other end, they've, been, there's been a lot of energy, of positive energy from young people. So that, that, that's something that we have not, we cannot underestimate. Well, the, the, the singing from the balconies went around the world in Italy. So that, that energy, we should take that and, and, and run with it. So, Hopefully. Yeah, Hopefully. yeah, yeah, let's, let's yeah. do it. So I broke down this podcast in four quarters, as you can expect. I like to break down games. So uh, the first quarter would be the beginnings of your journey. Um, and allow me to skip over the achievements and the trophies and the particular parts of history um, with, with respect to it. May they, may they rest in peace, but they're still in all of our memories. But I would like to go into more practical and applicable things to, to the up-and-coming coaches and the basketball community in general. Sure. Um, the, the coaching, you, you pick coaching, and it's the hardest profession in the world. Most coaches would agree. And people next to being a president or anything of that nature, because it it, it requires a big capacity of, of handling different situations. 
how did you go about choosing coaching? Where was the beginning, the first steps? And my research says that you don't come from a basketball family, so it was not automatically assumed that you would be a basketball savant. So where where did that start? And a follow-up question would be uh, that we can get into afterwards is Renato Dianello, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, was the first. Dianello. Dianello. So he's the so, man. He's the man. So let's yeah, let's talk so about the first part. Yeah. First of all, uh, as you correctly said, my family not a sport family. My father was a lawyer. Uh, my mom had an housewife, and uh, uh, awkwardly, I became a coach, and my uh, late brother. Uh, what well, an international athlete for of karate for Italy. He he competed in the in the worlds. He competed in the European Championship. He was a, a black belt. Uh, whatever done he was. So both of us were in sport, you know, for all our life, and that that's pretty funny. Um, I grew up in Mestre and Venice. Uh, Mestre is the land part of Venice, you know, uh, not uh, not on the sea, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, uh, both small cities, a little bit like San Francisco and Oakland, let's say they're they're separated from the bridge, and uh, both cities, for whatever reason, were full of playgrounds. Uh, especially Venice, impossible to find uh, soccer fields too big, too big, not enough space. But in all churches uh, and all uh, um, schools, there were basketball playgrounds. Um, so I started playing basketball when I was. 12 or 11 in school and then um, I moved to play basketball to play basketball in the youth program of Reyer Venezia. Reyer Venezia now is uh, still uh, the current champion of Italy and is playing in the Champions League in, in the Euro Cup I'm sorry and uh, you know back then it was probably one of the top five teams in Italy after Milano Varese and Bologna and uh, the head coach of the team, was my physical education teacher in school. And so, you know, basketball was pretty big. So I, I made it to the, their youth pro- program, and I had this uh, wonderful coach, Renato Vianello, who, like it always happens in life, um, you meet somebody who, with this behavior, uh, with this um, enthusiasm, with this knowledge, um, inspires you. So to see this coach coming every day to practice, dressed like a coach, uh, with his practice plan, and always uh, teaching, always uh, pushing us, always giving us the opportunity to talk to him, always encouraging us. Um, and back then, all these coaches were doing basketball as a second job. Even the head coach of the club who was doing physical education uh, teacher, uh, because back then nobody could live make a living out of that. So, you know, I started being attracted by this personality. And uh, I loved playing. I could play hours and hours and hours, even in the winter, outdoor with all my friends. But to see this, how they were running the team uh, and putting and helping us to get together and play hard, it was something that really hit me since when I was 15, 16, 17. Uh, so at some point, I, I was not going to be a high-level player. And this idea to become a little bit of a coach was, you know, a little bit here, a bug in my mind. And uh, I started helping with the younger kids, 
11 years old, 12 years old, going to the gym. And, you know, uh, before my practice, I was helping the coaches with this, with these young players. So long story short, my, the last year I played, I was 17. We were in the final, in the regional final, uh, playing home. Uh, at, at buzzer expires, we were tied. Uh, they ran a play for me. I get I get foul. I go to the line. I was a good, very good foul shooter, but for whatever reason, I felt the emotion. I missed both free throws, and we lose. Okay. The day after, the head coach calls me in his office in school. So not another Vianello. He calls me in his office. I go there, and he gives me a shampoo, telling me how I messed up everything up because. I didn't follow me by my legs. I was shitting my pants and blind, 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 blind. I was really down. So at the end of all this, it says, listen, you're not going to be a player flat like that. But I saw you in the gym with the young kids. I think you can be, you could become a good coach. So if, if you want to quit and listen to this, I was 17. If you want to stop playing, uh, we'll, we'll help you with the, with your education. I think like in Lithuania and most countries in Europe, you have to go through an education to get a coach's license, you know, and there are all different steps. You, you do that in years. So I said, we're going to help you. We're going to pay for your education. You can start coaching our youth teams uh, next year. And if you think about that, that, that's crazy. And all my life has been marked by people who saw something in me that I could not even think and gave me an opportunity where probably if I were in their shoes, I would have not given myself an opportunity. So this guy gave me an opportunity to start coaching when I was 17. And when I was 23, I became a, an assistant coach in Bologna, in Virtus Bologna. And when I was 29, they offered me the job as a head coach. And when I was 33, somebody else, the president of the federation, offered me to become the national coach of Italy. So all these people gave me opportunities. And I was lucky because of that, because I think, and I experienced that personally, you can be very good, you can be very, you can study everything, you can have all your diplomas or degrees, you can be the smartest in the world, but if, there, if you don't find somebody, if you don't meet somebody that give you an opportunity, you will never grow awesome or develop into anything. And there are a lot of people, I'm fully aware of this, and I really believe this, um, there are a lot of people that are very capable and they never shine because nobody gives them an opportunity. And that's why I think getting older, I think one of my responsibilities, having had success, is to, if I find somebody who deserves an opportunity, find a way to give him that opportunity, whether he's a player or a young coach or uh, uh, a manager or whatever it is. As long as I am in position to do it, I feel that that's my responsibility because that's what people did, did for me. I can relate to that fully because I would not have been, I would not be here now if Kozlowskos would not have given me the opportunity to, to work at Seska and then with the national team. Then, as you say, it's also on the person to use that opportunity to work through it. But opening sure. up the door, it, it, it has to do with luck. You have to have a lucky break and you have to have somebody pushing you to give you that Absolutely. opportunity to to show yourself and show your talent, and if you don't have it, you don't have it. If you but but the, that lucky break is is means a lot, and not many people get it. I I totally agree. 
And uh, I, I will get back to Renato later on because one thing, one thing, how you described is is how I wanted to end this podcast, but we're not there yet. Uh, I wanted to also, uh, first of all, talk about the transition from from to becoming an assistant coach. Uh, at the professional level and the the areas that you struggled with the most early on what what were some of the things that you had to learn on the fly learn quickly and the main questions you asked your mentors i imagine renato was one of the guys that you asked for help or some guidance um that help that would help you to adjust quicker um it's that's uh, it's a little bit of a complicated question. Uh, uh, it's interesting because I started doing um, youth basketball, so I had my team, my team or my teams, uh, and that goes four years in Venice, and then it's uh, two more years in Mestre. Back then in Mestre, the basically the crosstown rival, uh, they had an amazing youth program, so. One day, they basically pulled me out from Venice to go to them. It's like going from, forgive me, Duke to North Carolina or vice versa, or Lietubas, Ritas to Zalgiris or vice versa. But, you know, that was a growth, in my opinion, because their youth program was better than the one in us, okay? So, and I was just, uh, you know, on the other neighbor. So, it was a great opportunity. So, overall, I'm already doing six years uh, coaching young players two teams every day boom, boom 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 now all of a sudden the head coach of mestre back then mestre so figure that in the same city we had two teams in the pro division okay so the head coach there in mestre after two years i'm there moves to become the head coach in a2 in udine where just to give an idea players like uh, praia dalipagic or Sven Nader uh, played through the years, you know, uh, or a guy named Jim McDaniels back then. So a lot of good tradition city. And he asked me to become his assistant. Back then, only one assistant. So from six years, where I've been always a head coach, even in, in a small world of a youth team, I become an assistant. And I had no clue what an assistant should be. And uh, so my strength probably to do individual the players development so teach the players so in the morning i was doing all my players development um strategically i don't think i i was that much of a great helper in my first years because you know one thing is so i I needed to focus a lot on that and the biggest adjustment has always been even when i became an assistant to coach pop which i think is the highest uh, rank of the assistant coaching jobs, you know, when you listen to a genius of our profession, is to try to understand how your head coach thinks and try to learn to think like him. And that's very simple because so now if you manage to do that and put yourself in his shoes, now you can understand how he's thinking and you become better at the kind of suggestion you can provide and the way you provide a, a suggestion and the way you help him counteracting his mood. Bottom line, he's depressed, you gotta be fired up. He's overexcited, you gotta you gotta be calm just to bring him back to earth. 
old head coaches, all head coaches, we there are moments that we are overexcited because we play very well and we think we're unbeatable. And sometimes we think we're the worst team in the world. The players are the worst. I'm the worst. Uh, so I don't care who you are. In, in, every, in that profession, there are moments you need to be cheered up and moments you need to be calmed down and brought back to earth, you know? And uh, so to do that with, with uh, you know, some kind of... Uh, uh, to do it in the right way, you need to understand how your head coach is thinking. And that's very difficult. And uh, you need, that, that's, that's, I think, the biggest adjustment. Finally, finally, and it's a little bit hilarious because I was at, at the youth level, but I was a head coach. So I was thinking, and at the end, I was taking the final decision. So all of a sudden, you don't take any more, any final decision. So, you know, that's, that's, that's hard. That's human. Uh, I don't. I don't care how how humble you are, and you should be. But there's gonna be a little part of you that, you know, has a has a hard time for you not taking the final decision. Otherwise, otherwise you are uh, Mother Mother Teresa from Calcutta, and, <laughs> which is not uh, is not the truth. And uh, so to handle that kind of uh, inner, you know, desire to to take the decision and be, of course respectful and supportive and uh, straightforward uh, it, it's uh, it's not easy it's not easy I always say to my assistants worst job in the world to be an assistant I respect being an and, and I've been lucky that in my life at one point of my life I had to the opportunity to go back and be an assistant because uh, you know it's not easy to be an assistant but that makes you think. And makes you a better. I understand why now. Now I understand why in the NBA is so uh, common that unless you are Greg Popovich or Doc Rivers or whatever, yeah, that are for the majority of the coaches, it's very normal to be a head coach, and then you get back to being an assistant for a while, and then you're back to being a head coach again. Why? Because that makes you better. Yeah. And in Europe, for whatever reason. You're an assistant. You can be an assistant for all your life, or you are a head coach for all your life. And uh, there is too much difference, I think, in the consideration that we have towards head coaches and assistants. I'm sure it. There is a lot of uh, strange dynamics that are 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 going on between the shifts of those roles. And in the NBA, like you said, it's much more natural to shift between those two positions. And I'm sure there's a lot of humbling also going on in in terms of uh, you know putting Absolutely. your ego putting your ego in check in certain situations where you, like you said you know you have to know when to say something when you have to shut up and when 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 you have to also take the take the the role with how to talk to players and put them you know keep them aligned with the program and keep them on the same Absolutely. line. Absolutely. So, there's there's a lot of challenges with 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 this position yeah. and especially with the shift back and forth. And I agree. but my my one of my questions that I had that were I thought would be very important to talk about was uh, a paradigm shift during your career where you thought maybe like where you understood that there's levels to this you know because I had that obviously and I'm I'm not talking about like first second division level or or levels of talent because that's obvious that there's a difference but in terms of depth to the game in terms of the the depth 
understanding of the profession. When did the paradigm shift occur? It was like, aha, that, that there's a lot more that I should you know embrace and I should know more and learn more uh, in order to be a, the best head coach possible. There are probably uh, two moments. Um, uh, one, the, the first is related to the opportunity to uh, visit the United States. In 1981, I was in my second year in Mestre, uh, and uh, uh, I was fluent in English back then. Uh, and if you want, we will we'll go back to that uh, after. For whatever reason, I was uh, 22 and I was very, very, I was speaking very good English. And that helped me a lot in my profession because the head coach uh, who eventually took me as his assistant in Udine, uh, that year he planned a trip to the United States. We had a player, a former player of the Atlanta Hawks, John Brown. And this John Brown, who had played for years in the NBA, he was a power forward with a great shot. Uh, he had been coached by Juby Brown, Cotton Fitzsimmons, uh, Norm Stewart at the University of uh, Missouri, and uh, oh, John McLeod. Uh, I mean, so he offered coach, my head coach, to set up one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings with all his former coaches. Unbelievable. So the coach, who was not speaking great English, says, listen, Ettore, uh, if you buy your own plane ticket, I'll, I'll take care of you once we are in, this, in the States. You know, the hotel, we'll share the hotel room. Uh, I'll pay you all the meals. Imagine, we're, we were all amateur back then, okay? Yeah. So with my savings, I bought my own plane tickets to go with them. And we spent 15 days in America Wow. Starting with uh, uh, in uh, uh, Kansas City, where John Brown was living, and we met in Atlanta, in Phoenix, uh, all his former coaches. And so I met, for example, Hubie Brown. Hubie Brown, I had listened to him uh, giving uh, lectures at the Eurobasket in Italy in 1979. So 1979. I listened to him doing the clinic at this Eurobasket, and he shocked me the first day. His lecture was two hours about terminology. He talked about terminology, you know, why it's important to have a clear terminology. So when you say catch the ball at the elbow, the players know what it means. Or free to line extender, or we hedge instead of help and recover, whatever it was. So for first time, first time that somebody pointed me, uh, out how important it is to have a terminology and the fact that i will find that 30 years later 20 years later that in the nba every team because of the head coach they have have different terminology which is quite common among the old teams but there are some major differences okay and you leave that when we worked together in Ceska, there were you from lithuania dima shakulin from russia myself uh italian quinn snyder from America. So we had to find out a term a common terminology that we could share among ourselves and the players. So that's just a small example. But that trip, when I met all these top coaches, I felt like I was zero. 
So I felt, hey, we're gonna, you know. And the mm-hmm. the thing that hit me was that they were super high, not that much in terms of strategy, but in terms of teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, teaching the fundamentals, teaching the detail, uh, organizing a practice. Or it was not the, the fancy side out of bounds play or the fancy two guards offense. Forget that. They were teaching, 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 and they had a progression. And that's where I started understanding. Hey, I gotta have, I gotta make sure that my that my teaching method, meaning the progression, and the way. I try to transfer my, let's call it knowledge to my players is certified. You know, there is a, yep. there is a, a system on it, first time. Then much later, fast forward uh, between uh, the December 92 and uh, July 97, I was the head coach of our national team. And uh, great time of my life because I was young. But we put together a great program. We, my first Eurobasket, we we got out in the preliminary round. After four years, putting basically all the under twenty national team that was silver medal in the world. After four years, we got the silver medal in Barcelona. And I say that because it's one of the things that gave me more, let's say, happiness to see this program move on. Okay. But in those, as you know, when you are the when you are working full time for a national team, you have a lot of free time, and I use all my free time to visit all the top coaches in Italy and Europe, to go see their practices, and I mean most of them, starting with Ivkovic, who was in that in those years in Olympiakos, I think, uh, to other coaches in Italy, uh, um, you know, it was amazing. It was an amazing learning experience, mm-hmm. you know. And and uh, and even now to see all these great coaches, how they were relating to the players, how they were running practice, how they organized the practice, how they prepare a game, you know, different styles, different personality, that opened my 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 mind a lot. And then final step was when I went to the NBA with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, preconcept, like in the NBA they don't do anything all day. They just play the game and the game is easy. And I had to open up my eyes because I see how hard they work individually, mm-hmm. how hard they work to prepare themselves, how hard and demanding is the season of them, how quick are all the coaches in the NBA to take decisions. They are very well prepared, amazingly prepared because the game goes so fast. How good, I would say, most of the assistants in the NBA are in terms of X, O's, uh, attention to details, uh, ability to teach. I mean, that, that's another world. It's honestly another another world. I thought, I thought it was not like that. I thought that we were so good in Europe, like coaches and players and organization, that we had nothing to envy to the NBA. Well, that was really, uh, you know. Eye-opening. It was a, yeah, it was, a, yes, eye-opening, a learning experience. Uh, I've seen so many uh, uh, assistant coaches that are so good that I've been impressed. And then I, I was lucky enough to experience the opportunity to be a head coach in, in games there when Coach Pop was not there. Believe me, the game is so quick that you as a coach have to think so fast. And and uh, 
you know, matchups, calls, timeouts, and, and this. I mean, it's it's really demanding, really demanding. You, yeah. you basically have to see things before they happen. You have to anticipate all the time. And and at the highest level, with the highest level of athletes, that's the most difficult part, I think, of that profession really at that is. level. It really is, yeah. And uh, just to finish up the first quarter here, before before we head on to, to my favorite topic, communication, looking back at your career and all the wins, all the highs, uh, the experience of winning is second to none. You can't find it anywhere else in the regular life, I think. Um Besides, maybe in a family when you are, when the son or daughter is born, <laughs> but sure. I've heard that. No, I've, no, I've not, heard... Even, no, not even to compare. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a different realm. But uh, in terms of losses, though, if you look back, the lessons learned, I think, from losses are much more valuable, or can be much more valuable when you're uh, reflecting properly. And Tim Ferriss, I don't know if you heard of Tim Ferriss. He's, a, he's an entrepreneur, a very famous podcaster, and he calls it favorite failure. So what would be your favorite failure that you reflect on and you can say that you can carry an important lesson from that on? Well, it's too easy, all of them. I'm a very poor loser, sore loser. Mm. I, 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 I don't lose well. I don't, uh, honestly, in, in the short term, I don't see all the benefit of losing. Losing is painful, and uh, you gotta be very, very, let's say, uh, mature uh, to understand that there is a learning in that. Um, probably, I I learned to be a little bit more patient in my years in the NBA, and even now with this tough schedule that we have in Europe, where of course you can't uh, overthink a loss. Because after 48 hours, you have another game. Uh, but honestly, um, I agree with you in terms of theory. But to put that in action, I still have a hard time to see. But still, I recognize one thing. Um, that during the year, uh, you need uh, to have some of those uh, losses learned. And you don't pay a too high price in terms of standings, you know. Mm -hmm. the, um, and that happens only to the, those teams who are on top. You're, they are on top. They play consistently. So now they can afford once in a while a loss that's in something. something you know? But if you're in the, in the middle of the pack, every loss is a problem. Yes, yes. I, I, I agree with you. I think there are certain parts. I think that with the discussions that you have with your staff, obviously you, you, you break down and you analyze to death. Sure. Uh, but in, in in general, losing is is always tough, and it's hard to handle either way. Yeah. Um, yeah. If we talk losing about with the national team, losing with the national team is the worst, because when you lose with the national team, most of the time you end the possibility to compete. It's over. You go back home. You are eliminated from the competition. Uh, there is no tomorrow. That's awful. While most of the times, uh, unless you are in the playoffs. Uh, you lose with a club, you still have a game tomorrow. You still have something to prepare for. And the national team is ugly. You might not see your team, your players for, for four months yeah. after that loss. So even if you learn, there is nothing you can share for about four months. And that's, that's really ugly, honestly. Yeah, that's I can relate to that 100%. <laughs> Losing in Lithuania and coming back to Lithuania, well, you try not to lose face, but it's it's difficult to, to deal with it for the whole nation. So. Sure. Sure. Um, 
if we if we talk, if we think talk about communication, I don't have a buzzer to go into the second quarter, so we just have. No worry, we're we're in the we're in the second quarter. <laughs> um, if without without naming names and without naming teams, um, because for me it's probably would have more repercussions than for you. But this podcast is not about names; it's not about teams. It's about just several uh, certain topics that are applicable to coaching life. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of hard conversations that you had in the past, because as a head coach, uh, I'm sure you had plenty of them. Um, is there one conversation where you think you you think still think back today, uh, whether it was with management, with a staff member, or a player that you learned from a lot, and you can still carry the lessons from that today? Well, I I learn a lot from a, from a player every time I talk to a player. I tell you why. I was not a player. As you know, I stopped playing when I was 17. So I do not know anything about how they feel before a big game, how they feel in the locker room, how they can develop their trust among themselves. Um, I can see them. I can study them. I can, let's say, help them to become closer. But what they feel inside, what, what a champion feels inside, you know, I've always studied all those great players that I've been lucky to coach in Europe, in America. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I try to, I try to reveal everything possible because there are, there are so many different styles of leadership. There are mm-hmm. so many different, different styles of being, of being a, a pro player, of being a top athlete, of, of being, you know, uh, Kobe Bryant is different from Tim Duncan and the team is different from Manu and Manu is different from Pau Gasol. And Pau Gasol is different from Sasha Danilovic. And, and again, 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 again. And I've seen so many of them. And I, you know, I, I could not share anything with them. So every conversation for me was very, very important. And even, even now in Milano, I have so many great players, uh, but even those who are not great players, and just because they are players and they leave the locker room and they leave the pregame, and during the game, and after the game, and it's a learning experience every time. Now, I think the most difficult conversation you have with a player is when you cut him from the national team. That's awful, honestly, because most of the times those players have worked maybe all summer to make it to the final roster for the competition. And another one is difficult conversation is when you need to help a player that because of his age is no more what he used to be and he cannot see that. Mm. And he still thinks that he's, he's the same player when he, of uh, five years earlier. And now you need to make him understand that the reason why he's not playing is that because he's no more himself. It's different. Yeah. It's yeah. over. It's over. And you need to help him to do the reality check. And the reality check is not only putting that guy on the bench, which is already hard for every coach, but also to help him understand. Help him understand that life is going by, that that father time is asking his tool. His, you know, and uh, most of the play, and this is difficult because when you do professional sports as a coach, you are in an environment, the fans, that see those players who are declining they keep seeing them like when they were 28. Yeah, yeah. They, it's like it's like if they are under drugs. They don't see that. 
And they always dream that, that there is a coach smarter than you that can make that player play in the same way that, that he played when he that was he younger. Uh, yeah. And it can happen. It can happen. If you see historically, very, very few players have, uh, let's say, handled their, let's say, Sunset Boulevard uh, in, in a good way. It's always been painful. And he's always left uh, scars uh, on the coaches that were coaching them, on the players themselves, uh, because that's the way it is, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, so those conversations are very, very different. I can say I think that one guy comes always to mind when I have these conversations was Shishka, who 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 retired. Maybe he could have even played a couple more years, you know, where he sure. was right I at that. Him. I hmm. begged him. I signed for Ciska, and uh, if you remember, we had Ciska and we had Kirilenko and we had Sved. And after 30 days, Sved was a free agent left, Kirilenko retired, and Ciska retired. <laughs> <laughs> so I begged, I begged Ciska, I remember, to keep playing. Or another one is Sasha Danilovic. Sasha Danilovic, when he was 30, wow. 30 years old, and he had wow. two more years in his contract with Bologna, he called me at night. After one, after the only practice he had in preseason, after coming back from the Olympics in Sydney, and he told him, "I'm done. Wow. I'm done." He was 30 with two more years. And by the way, that opened the way to Manu Ginobili, mm. who became our starter. So think about coincidence. Think about you know how strange is life. But, but Slide, uh, sliding doors. That's exactly right. But but uh, Sasha could have played easily. Well, he had to play probably through uh, injuries uh, because mm -hmm. he was injury-prone injury back in that moment. But he has so much, let's say, charisma and personality that probably he could not accept the fact that he could have not been the real Sasha Danilovic because mm -hmm. of his injuries. Mm -hmm. So he gave up money, he gave up everything just to walk away when he was still in his prime. Michel Platini in soccer, he did the same thing. Mm -hmm. At one point he said, I'm... That's it. I'm gone. Very few yeah. players do that. Most of the players, because they love basketball, yeah, they love yeah. the sport, they love being the guy. They want to try until they are, you know, they cannot even move. Yes, yes. It's difficult. It's difficult. When when you when you go back and you had those conversations with particular players, whether it was their initiation or your initiation. Did you have a way of preparing for those? Uh, did you have your certain techniques or certain words that you carefully chose? Because there's a lot about, you know, certain speeches that you give and certain conversations that you have that you can prepare and you know which words to choose. Or was it just gut and intuition that you that you use to have those conversations? I always, I always try to be as honest, as straightforward as I could be. I will never, I never try to sugarcoat anything. I think players are very intelligent. Players understand. Players as uh, players have a lot of, uh, you know, empathy, and you mm -hmm. have to give them the same empathy if you can. I think. Yeah. I think it's uh, um, you can prepare yourself, meaning that you can choose the words, you can use maybe examples, you can you know uh, find a way to connect. But I think that honesty is the most important thing. I've always been impressed by uh, uh, for what I know it, it was uh, Gandhi definition of integrity 
Mahatma Gandhi's definition of integrity is when you align what you think with what you say and what you do, mm-hmm. which is pretty, it's pretty, you know, impressive because it, that, that means that unfortunately a lot of times for whatever reason, we think one way, but we say something which is not related to what we were thinking. And sometimes we, even worse, we behave yes. different from what we yes. said or what we were thinking. Yeah, it's very hard. It's very hard to align thinking, speaking, and behaving. I think I think that that's a huge, huge challenge. But that's where we have to tend. I think. I like the, one of the biggest attributes of coaching. I think is that you have to absolutely avoid to be a hypocrite because players like l- look through it straight away, and they appreciate honesty and they appreciate that you you talk uh, walk the walk. <laughs> Let me uh, let me talk. let me interrupt you for a second. They appreciate the truth, but sometimes not at the same moment. Mm, yeah, yeah, reflection. Deliver yep. the truth. Sometimes it takes a lot of time for them to, you know, understand that what you told them was the truth. It's not yeah. easy. It's yeah. not, definitely not easy. Yeah, it takes time sometimes to digest it, and and the ego won't allow to 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 you know to look through it right away. You it has to sure. sicker through. I think um, to look back just shortly for your time in uh, in in the NBA before coming back to be a head coach again, you went through the head coaching interview process in the NBA, and I've never actually like now that I look back on, I never talked to anybody about that process and how how it went about. How did you prepare and after preparing and going through the process, were there one or two questions that you still remember today that were like, man, that was that was really good thought through and really good, uh, well thought out, again, without naming names or teams, with just, just general facts? Well, right now, um, there is nothing that, that hit my mind. What, what I can tell you is that every time I went to an interview, and some of them were also the final round of the interview. Uh, I always have my, uh, a booklet with everything, you know, in terms of the way I analyzed the roster, the way I analyzed their franchise, the way I analyzed their uh, future, and uh, in terms of so. And I had I had a, a group of people that always helped me in terms of you know put together the analytics. Mm-hmm. You know, for for that, so put together the numbers, put together, uh, studied the efficiency of every player of every. I think honestly, it was a very very well done book, you know, um, and there was also pointing out where I thought there could have been made improvements, you know, and what I thought was good to maintain and done before. Um, I've I've had uh, uh, I've had. Uh, conversation even with some owner when in those situations where I managed to get to the final round unfortunately I always lost the final round otherwise I wouldn't be here but uh, <laughs> um, I think that the most interesting thing was always to see how they were relating to the fact that they were talking with a foreigner so mm-hmm. the, what always Uh, attracted me and interested me was to see how they were handling on one side the fact that they they were somehow intrigued 
by the idea to have you as a coach. And on the other one, the concern of how you could have been welcomed by the players, mm-hmm. you know, uh, being a foreigner. So that was the interesting part for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in ODA, where relationships are very, very important. And, you know, you need the, you need to have the trust, uh, you know, of, of the players of that club. Uh, that was the most interesting part. And, of course, I had, uh, I remember, you know, players talk. So, of course, the players from the Spurs always helped me in mm-hmm. every recruiting process. Coach Pop, R.C. Buford, they always helped me. So, if I was, if I got very close to that, uh, it was because people helped me even that even that time, you know. So uh, I, I, at that point, but going back to your question, to see how they were handling the interested for you as a coach and as a person, but a little bit of you know resistance slash concern slash curiosity to see how the the foreigner could handle that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, the dynamics the dynamics are different, obviously, because because of the um, international process. But uh, in terms, when you look back now, we said knowing the players and communicating with the players and and the players standing up for you. How has the communication changed with the players over the course of the last years, I mean decades? Yeah, what did you notice in terms of how they absorb information? Is there a, a lack of, um, let's say, volume of information they can they can attain? Uh, and retain during a game. And has, have you noticed the difference between the generations uh, over the years of how much information they can absorb and the attention span they have? That's interesting. Um, first of all, uh, if I say that I notice a difference, uh, it has to be understood in the correct way. Uh, let me let me make an example. If I compare my son Filippo who's 16, to myself when I was a student, completely different attention span, completely different uh, way to communicate, completely different way to focus. Uh, and I'm not saying that I was better than him or he's better than me. It's just different. Yeah. Uh, Filippo, Filippo communicates much more quickly using WhatsApp, Twitter, um, Instagram. Uh, he's more used to visualize while I was used more to write, you know, mm-hmm. to write. I was taking notes, notes. I, I, have, I still have uh, uh, hundreds of books that I wrote of notes uh, at lesson. Uh, now completed it, okay? So in the same token, my players of 30 years ago could handle, I don't know, a 45 minutes video session. Today, I cannot handle such a long <laughs> session as a coach. <laughs> After 10 minutes, I'm done. Yeah. I mean, I, I need, uh, and, I, uh, and, and working with Coach Pop, I've, I've seen Coach Pop doing, doing mini meeting with one clip to show the players. But that clip was uh, the result of a lot of hours of meeting among the coaches to understand what was the real, let's say, the most important thing that we need to focus for the players and which was the most uh, or uh, the, the clearest clip of our last two games to, sh- to make the point. And then what we were doing after showing them the clip, what coach was telling them, and what we were doing in practice 
right after. Yeah. That yep. was an amazing work of you know synthesis, you know, yep. or picking picking your spots. When I was coaching three years ago, I could run a video session one hour and probably say so many things that most of them were going unperceived. And still I was making the point of those two, three things that were very, very important, you know? Yeah. But with yeah. a lot of work. Now to, you know, pick your spot, select, be more, you know, efficient with Fil your filter. time. Filter. That's exactly right. It's that, that's what you need. Uh, and also, uh, think about that. When I, <laughs> when I was going to school uh, from primary, middle, high school, college, Everything was uh, written test or oral examination. An oral examination, you had to be able to entertain, to talk, to present, to answer questions, and blah, and blah, and blah, and blah. Here, most of it is multiple choice. Mo most of it is a test on, on a film, and boom, 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 boom. Completely different. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Now, an emoticon says more than 10 words. So it's not it's not that it's better or worse. It's different. Mm -hmm. So I, I get surprised that once in a while I send a watch to my players just to tell, hey, you know what? You, you had a great game today. Yeah. You were boom, boom, boom. Or sometimes, hey, was not your best night, but keep working. Everything will be okay. Or maybe I send them a clip. Or maybe I see something that I, I would like to share with them, not about basketball. Boom, I send them a little a little message. Back then, it was necessary a meeting all the time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but that's so exciting, believe me, because you, being older, learn how to relate with younger people, and how to how to, you can get your their attention, which is extremely rewarding when when you feel you made it and you got their attention. Yeah, I think f finding the connection with the player in 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 on new terms and ad adjusting. I mean, there's something that I want to talk about later: is adapt or die mentality. And you you either adapt or you you're just gonna fade out. So I think it's a big strength of a coach to be able to adapt and then prioritize of of uh, how to communicate. But how, just yeah, but curious. There is how another thing, uh -huh. Dennis. There is another thing. You cannot misinterpret and think that you have a better communication if you kiss their ass. No, 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 yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, I see this still a problem. A lot of people, a lot of, I see, I see, and I've seen a lot of this. They think that, that becoming closer to the players, they are doing them a favor. Uh, I think that uh, if probably, uh, you know, you, you help them if you ask them to, if you challenge them to become better, unfortunately, that that's not happening all the time. Yeah, yeah. Just curious, how many WhatsApp messages do you have a day these days? Depends. <laughs> when you lose, when you lose, not a lot. When you win, a lot. <laughs> okay. Um, just in third quarter, I don't want, want to make the third quarter too long. It's it's about philosophy. It's not too esoteric, I hope. But I I also like the philosophical part. And we talk we have a lot of conversations about different things that are sure. philosophy related. Um, but one thing that I always think about is purpose, and it feels like you have a purpose driven life, and also you try to instill that into your players to have a purpose driven mentality on the court you know the coaching uh, uh 
coaching them with a purpose-driven mentality. How do you um, correlate th those two, life and basketball, with, with, the, with the word purpose? And how do you go about instilling that into the players? I, you know, not instill nothing. And uh, um, you will be probably laughing at this, but one thing that has gone through all my life and, and also my, my career, I, I really, and I'm not, I'm not joking, uh, sometimes I'm still surprised they listen to me. Mm. My challenge, my inner challenge has always been to develop a situation that my players trust me and uh, listen to me not not necessarily to do exactly what i ask them but at least to you know they think that what i'm telling them might be interesting or useful to them you know uh the other thing um and and i'm i don't have a as you will know i don't have a good character meaning that I don't have enough patience. And one of the biggest quality of a teacher should be the patience. Mm -hmm. And I've never had the patience. I've never had the patience with myself. And as a consequence, I don't have the patience with my players. I don't have enough patience. Probably I'm a little bit better now than 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, I was a little bit better than 20 years ago. But so once said that, sometimes I'm still grateful that they still show let's say some kind of uh, let's call it appreciation or whatever you want to call it to me uh that my players show them that and i'm grateful to, to them at the same time because i would i would like to be the best possible coach every day and i think i take the losses very bad because i think that i could have done something to prevent that loss uh i think the players just just respect that And, uh, and, uh, you know, they, you know, they share the same, the same thing. Uh, and most important thing, you don't change them. That's one of the biggest lessons I learned from coach pop. And you as a coach know very well that in all of us, there is a, an idea that we could do a better job than another colleague with a player. That player didn't play very well for, for Benas. I have a feel that if we get him, we'll make it play better here. You know, mm -hmm. uh, is that arrogance? Is that ego? Is that naivety to do better? Uh, I don't know. Coach Pop, one of the very first things he told me was, you cannot change them. Mm -hmm. They are who you are, who they are. So if they didn't play well for Coach Riley or Coach uh, uh, Stevens or whatever, or if they didn't behave well, They're not behaving better because they can't feel and because I coach them. So I don't take a chance. Yeah. So what is the what is the bottom line? Bottom line is that if you get players that as human beings, you share the same vision, the same values, the same, you know, uh, concept, there is a higher chance you can do well. If you pick players that for whatever reason, they think different or they have different values still respectful or whatever things don't work simply that and so the best you can do is that you can try to be consistent try to be honest try to be straightforward 
try to be to show, let's say, equality. When I when I mean equality, I mean that's very big to me. That to the same behavior correspond the same reaction, independently from who you are. Because the worst thing is that that you can have is is treat people different depending on their status as player. You know, mm-hmm. and in all organization, there is always a great dilemma, which is in this organization, people with more skills are expected to have more responsibilities or just because they have the talent, they can take shortcut because we hope that their talent will let us win. That's always been the history of all organization, in sports, in life, in business, in whatever. So as long as I'm the coach, if you are the best, I expect from you the most. And sometimes people don't don't agree with it with that. Mm. And I'm, you know, so if you are if you think different from me in that specific thing, you have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. But also like there there can't be like you like you're saying, there can't be special treatment with the best player. He you expect the most out of him, but he's not gonna get any slack because of that. And uh, there's not gonna be a double standard for for the best player it's going to be same rules apply to everybody it's just the expectation uh, on the court are a little bit different do i understand correct yeah but even i'm not saying that everybody i mean the great player that plays 35 minutes in a game he deserves to rest probably the day after you cannot expect him to come to practice and have a hard practice yeah so standards in practice but what i what i what i expect is that in terms of uh, you know thinking team, in terms of accepting uh, criticism, in terms of uh, uh, taking responsibility and taking ownership for, for your, you know, I think that that's the same for everybody. Yeah. Then yeah. the load, the workload, how many shots you take, uh, blah, blah 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 blah. You know, if there is a rule that when we miss, we gotta sprint back as soon as we can, as fast as we can. To prevent the transition layup. I mean, if you are the best player, you can walk back. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so just bring back. You know, it's simple like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Coach Pop, and I'm sorry that I always refer to him, but he's the best. And uh, he always says something, and he says that not for free. He says that he's grateful uh, to the players that let him be himself and coach them the way he thinks he should coach them, you know? Because sometimes players don't don't let you be yourself because as soon as you start, you know, screaming for an awkward mistake, they take it personally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> so so what? Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a blessing when you can be yourself and you should be yourself because your authentic self your authentic self is the most important thing to be as a coach because you you don't want to be somebody else as a coach. That you as a player will determine what kind of coach I can be for you. And you can help me being a very good coach for you or you can help me to become a bad coach for you. And it's vice versa. I can help you to be a very good player for us or I can make it complicated for you to be a good player. So we got to find a way that we understand it each other. And, yeah. uh, and it goes down to how we 
assume that the relationship should be lead. You know, relationship with the coach, relationship with the teammate, and things like that. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it happens. It happens naturally. Sometimes can be a little bit, you know, help. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Simply like that, it doesn't happen. There are seasons where, you know, the chemistry is not there. And you can have as many dinners as you want, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, those dynamics, we you, you can't always control, but uh, we always think about how we can control them. And we tend to overthink also a lot. Uh, I am certainly one of those people that likes to think and overthink and think deep. But when when is there a time where you say, this is the decision, this is how it's going to be made? And how, like, the point I'm getting to, how much of that is your gut gut and intuition that's telling you that this is going to be the decision rather than calculation and thinking and thinking back and forth, debating with yourself, with your staff, when does the gut say that's this is it? Or is it your gut? I think there is a lot of gut feeling, I think. And this might be might sound strange to you because I told you I was not a player. Uh, I was not a player. Uh, and I had a very fortunate career. I mean, it's, it's, it would be stupid if I lie on that. At the same time, uh, I, you know, I think I have a lot of weaknesses, but I, I've had uh, uh, one thing that helped me in, in, in this life as a coach and as a person. I think that all of us, we understand when uh, a player is playing with his teammates and when he's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can see, you can feel if somebody is into it or not, if somebody is engaged or not. So when when I start feeling that that's not the situation, now decisions are already taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think I, I, the worst that happens when you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You know, at the end, at the end. Players want a decision. You want a decision. The environment wants a decision. So it's better to take a decision. I think it's easier during the game to take that decision because you're forced to to think quicker and decide quicker when it's between games or before practices where you have time to think and to talk and to discuss. So in the games, the time, the pressure of the time and pressure of the decision is much easier to take, whatever yeah. the decision is. I think so. Um, fourth quarter here, and uh, it's going to be a basketball. Second- <laughs> she she would fire me too, probably. Um, the fourth fourth quarter is about basketball specifically. Specifically, um, first of all, st- staff. How do you go about building your staff? What do you look for in your staff, and what do you expect from your staff? Whether it's during the game. Uh, during practice or off the court, what 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 are the the values you look for in your staff and your expectations from them? Uh, ability to argue. I, I I don't need I don't need to sit down and have no discussion. Uh, it's not easy. It's not easy um, to work with me uh, for whatever reason. Uh, you know, people sometimes are a little bit intimidated, not because of you, but because of the career. You know, like uh, I always joke about General Popov. 
like it's the, the imaginary Russian general with all the, you know, the, the uh, so, medals. I mean, yeah, the medals and whatever, but the medals are, are, are important, but that's not. So I need somebody, I need, I need to be challenged on, on, on uh, uh, tactical issues, preparation. Yeah. And uh, I need to be challenged. And uh, uh, if, you're not, if you're not ready to fight, that's a problem. Uh, I learned that the hard way. <laughs> I, 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 but I grew I from that. That was good. That was good. I'm glad, I'm glad you, you say that. Um, I, need, I need you to have as an assistant the ability to separate the obvious from the non-obvious. And I need you to use my energy for the non-obvious. Mm. If, 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 if I need to spend energy to discuss something which is obvious, we're already on the wrong, on the wrong side. Uh, I, need you, I need your energy because I, I, sometimes I'm exhausted and I need your energy. I need your ability to understand when I, you need, how you can counter my mood. And that's the most important part. Yeah, uh, because I'm I'm moody, and I need you to you know counter yeah. that balance uh, balance it out. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, at this, on the other end, what I can guarantee you is that I will never use you to create a triangle to communicate with the players. Mm -hmm. And if I trust you, you can talk to the players and whatever you talk. I trust that you will let me know what is important for me to know, mm -hmm. and you will keep for yourself what is what you think is important for you to keep for yourself. Sometimes, uh, in even in business, in companies, uh, assistants or uh, people are used to you know get some information, create triangle. Yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah. Worst, that's the worst in terms of communication in any group. Uh, people have to feel free to decide, but now. You need to be smart and intelligent and have empathy to understand what is good for me to know and what is not good for me to know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because that way you will help me and you will have the you will help the player. You know? And uh, so it's not easy. It's not easy. But those all this goes down the label of loyalty. Mm. No, because loyalty most of the times is uh, misinterpreted. It's like if a player says, Ah, coach, he fucked up this, he fucked up that. You go there and say, no, don't say that. That's not loyalty. That's that's uh, actor studio. You know, mm -hmm. loyalty mm -hmm. is the ability when you communicate with a player to understand what is important to let the head coach know in order to build a better trust between the players. And sometimes what is absolutely important, you keep it for yourself to help the players not get in trouble to help the players understand that he was maybe wrong yeah. and you don't need to involve the, the head coach in this and create bad relationship. You know, it's a huge job. You huge professionally. It's a huge job. That's why, that's why great assistants are so valuable, so valuable and not, and uh, you know, then of course you can have an assistant who is better during the game because he sees things quickly, whatever, Some somebody else is is uh, some other assistant in terms of basketball is better in planning the game. I mean that, that's not a big deal. I mean uh, I'm lucky if I can find the, but a, a person 
who understands what's going on in the team in terms of chemistry relationship, but, uh, empathy. empathy, empathy, whatever. It's, that's huge. Yeah, that's that's uh, one thing. As when when I started to become an assistant and I started going to that role and I started understanding what actually when my paradigm shift happened was when I started to understand these dynamics because those are the most challenging to understand what to filter, what not to filter. And I've seen and I know assistant coaches who halted or not ruined their career because they're still young, but they put themselves in trouble where they didn't have a good filter and they didn't know what to put bring back and it just backfired and it's not a. It's it's a very underrated skill to to know that, and the players don't forget that either. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in terms of discussions these days with the with the with the staff, uh, we decide we talked a lot about pick and roll, whether it's offensive spacing or how to defend the pick and roll. It was probably ninety percent of our discussions. Is that still the case, or is the game, are the discussions shifting towards a different direction, more uh, or less? Uh. I'm personally trying to go away a little bit more from pick and roll, you know, trying to, and as you see, I think in the Euroleague this year, you see more post-ups, you see more mm-hmm. exit for shooters, you see, I think that right now, defending and attacking the switches is becoming the yeah. major topic of conversation and matchups, you know, lineups mm-hmm. and matchups. That's very, that's very NBA. In the NBA, yeah. uh, uh, for sure, pick and roll was... The, one of the major topic of conversation, but matchups and rotation was huge, huge. The NBA is also different because there is a non-written rule that some moments of the game, both teams play with their second unit because the yep. game is 48 minutes. Here, you can pull people out early and bring it back very soon because it's 40 minutes. At yep. the end, the top player can play between 30 and 35. Basically, he has played all the game. One in the NBA still there are 13 minutes, even if you play top player 35 minutes. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. those at least 10 to 12 minutes are played by the second year. But overall, matchups and lineups this is becoming pretty big here, even here. Yeah, I think lineups in terms of like if you start switching a lot or if the other team is switching a lot, the lineup is much, much more important because of the matchups then are, you know, like you would have to have a whole lineup that's able able to either attack switches sure. or to switch. So uh, I think that's a very valuable discussion also in the NBA these days. I think we see that a lot on, on a different level. Um, finishing up uh, with your intense schedule, with your... Um, you know, pressure, pressure, high pressure life and high pressure performance. Um, the the balance on your on your on your game day and the routines you have. Is there a certain thing that you go through, a certain routine that you go through on game day? Because I know you have to maintain a certain frequency to manage your 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 focus, to manage your your anticipation of the game. What do you do on game day to maintain that frequency, and how do you go about to to transfer that uh, to the players? Game day is, is always the same. I try to have a workout early in the morning because I think that that sweating and doing something just clears my mind. You know, mm-hmm. I think it helps when you're lucky. You can you can have a physical workout that helps you. And then we have shoot around, and then uh, um, we. Um, I think the game, the day of the game, um, different from what I did uh, until a few years ago. Where, if you remember, when we were in Ceska, we were having uh, a little video session at uh, at the snack before the game. You know, I I don't do that anymore. 
I, I just finish my the preparation with the team in the morning, I shoot around. Mm-hmm. And after that, I leave them alone. And maybe the assistants, they go with some individual clips in the locker room just to refresh to those who need that. But I don't want to, I, I try to add them uh, a little bit more calm heading to the game uh, rather than, you know, keep keep meeting, keep meeting. And, and that, that, that I, I think that, that's not good. Yeah. No, it's personally i need to have i need to have a little bit of uh, you know physical activity where i just my brain is is off you know yeah. just go yeah yeah so to f- to finish off this is going to be his story because i'm going to read you a line of alex ferguson's book <laughs> so benas is reading a book to coach messina um and it's <laughs> Yeah, please yeah. don't fall don't fall asleep on me it's not it's not to fall asleep um but it's more about alex ferguson's uh, ability to find balance in terms of after the game and switch off so uh, he was into horse he started to get into horse riding and horses and horse races so a woman said to me at a haydock races one day in 2010 i see you on the television and you're so serious yet here you are laughing and enjoying yourself i told her well do you not want me to be serious at work? My job is about concentration. Everything that goes on in my brain has to be beneficial to the players. I cannot make mistakes. I don't take notes. I don't rely on video evidence. And I have to be right. It's a serious business and I don't want to be making mistakes. He goes on to talk about the mistakes he made during games. But it's not more about the mistakes. It's more about, to me, the point I'm making about finding the balance and finding the balance between enjoying life and, and, and not being serious but also respecting your profession and being serious. Where where do you find and where do you, where can you be um, in, relaxed and relaxed and enjoy maybe f- life with the family or or uh, anything else getting, that you do? I'm getting better here. For years, I let my mood depend on a win or a loss, yeah. and I'm not that this is not happening anymore. It still is like this. You win a game, you're happy. You lose a game, you're not happy. But you know when when you think all you went through in terms of family, when you see things going back to your first question, how people are struggling in this terrific time of the pandemic, you you really understand what what Coach Pop used to say. That's all. That's only basketball, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there are priorities that and things that come before basketball. Once you have given everything you can, like Mr. Ferguson said. In terms of being professional, being ready, being focused, and once you've done that, okay, it's still a ball that is bouncing and rolling, and you cannot you cannot forget your friends, families, people that you really love, and they love you not because you're a basketball coach. I think that's the perfect way to end this, coach. I uh, I appreciate I appreciate your time. Uh, I had Thank another note. I really appreciate. It. Please send me the link when you put that this on the internet. I will. Ah. I will I want to keep it for myself. It's, uh, you, you know how much I love you and respect you. And I'm grateful that we had a chance to talk like two friends today. Yes, yeah. yes, I will. And we'll make it public. And I'll send you... Uh, I, I made a note in the beginning of Renato because you talked about it, how he behaved himself, what values he carried. And sure. the, the, the last thing I had was here, respect your work. That's the number one lesson I learned from you. And Renato sounded like the guy that who respected his work. Yeah. So... Uh, thanks thanks again and uh, please please tell your wife I'm sorry uh, uh, love you take care All right. bye. love you too bye bye